forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual. I'm your host, Jessica Crispin. As you well know by now, Public Intellectual is supported by its listeners. So if you would like to become a supporter, please go to patreon.com slash public intellectual. We have bonus episodes. We have a blog. We have a goddamn tote bag. It's patreon.com slash public intellectual. This was the year of the grift. We had hoaxes. We had cons. We had fake identities. We had nuns embezzling money from a Catholic school so that they could go to Vegas and go gambling. It was a good year for the thief and the person who's not what they seem. It's a little reminiscent of about 10 years ago when we had the era of the fake memoir where one person after another was revealed to be just some white person from the suburbs rather than an inner city, inner city teen or a hardcore drug addict or, you know, a, a transvestite prostitute. There were a lot of them all in a row. So we're here to talk with Christopher L. Miller about the literary faker and the idea of authenticity in an era where anyone can pretend to be whoever they want. So is it only a hoax when you go down in privilege, like a straight white woman pretending to be a trans prostitute, um, rather than a woman taking a man's name like George Eliot? Right. Um, it, one of the surprises that I had in working on this project, and it took me quite a while to figure this out, was this pattern of inequality and where almost all of the hoaxes that I was looking at were working on this top-down axis where people with greater privilege and greater literacy, which I think is, is really important, um, uh, were hoaxing and appropriating an identity, um, quote-unquote, um, beneath them. In other words, uh, uh, an identity in a position of lesser, um, uh, lesser privilege. So, um, uh, I'm not sure exactly why that is. I don't have a grand answer to, um, uh, to that pattern, but it really did strike me how much, um, consistency there was in the kind of trajectory of these, uh, of, of these hoaxes. So I use the example of George Eliot, which I think as you're suggesting, is kind of a counterexample. Um, I use that for a very narrow purpose, which was to address the question um, that for me is is, is very important, a uh, question that I call forensic reading, which is, can you tell by reading alone what kind of person this is? And what, what happened was that Charles Dickens, apparently without any uh, outside information, read George Eliot and said, hmm, um, this sure seems like a woman writer, not uh, not a man. But um, that being said, I'm not sure I would call it a hoax what uh, what George Eliot did. You know, um, I think it was a um, 
an author in um, a, a situation of gender inequality who was trying to um, to get published and to get uh, get a fair reading and uh, gender uh, disguise was uh, was one way to do it and of course she was far from the only 19th century woman writer who who did that so this idea of going from greater to lesser privilege it does seem like it varies from time you know era to era and culture to culture why somebody would do that like in america there seems to be a need for authenticity and a um for representation Mm -hmm. Um, and so claiming this sort of more authentic space for, say, a straight white man who would have to sort of prove himself on a different level. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then you have these examples of, um, in French publishing of using the marginalized voice, the colonized voice in order to kind of justify colonization right to 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 say well it all works out in the end so the atrocities don't really matter yeah 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 so uh, yeah there are so many if you look at the i'm kind of looking at my own table of contents here and there's a, there's such a variety i mean there are commonalities but there are varieties if you start in the united states with slave narratives those abolitionists who were either guiding um uh the voices of slaves into writing um or making them up and appropriating them all of them uh all of those abolitionists what were what was their motivation well they wanted to abolish slavery right mm -hmm. they um you know their 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 hearts were pure so to speak uh even if their methods were uh were questionable and what we would now call um appropriative but um, uh, then, you know, you, you leap ahead and you look at other examples like the, the still, to me, rather incredible case of um, uh, Carter, um, uh, Asa Carter, who was a former Ku Klux Klan Klansman. Uh, speechwriter for George Wallace, who saw fit to... Um, uh, uh, pose through literature as a Cherokee, um, and um, uh, which seemed very, very puzzling to uh, most people when the hoax was first exposed. Of course, it was first exposed in 1976, and the exposure didn't take, um, and the book uh, lived on and, and lives on. Um, it's a case of what I call a zombie hoax that just won't, uh, won't die. Um, but then when people looked at it more closely and realized that there was a basically a kind of a state's rights agenda um, and um, an affinity between white Southerners and a certain identification with the Cherokee in particular um, as uh, quote unquote fellow victims of the uh, of the federal government. So. Um, Let's see, where where could I go from there um, into French examples? Mm -hmm. Is there one that I should think about or? Um, well, the example of um, sorry, what was the name of the book? The uh, the radiance of the king um, yeah. of being 
but there were other examples as well that were, so, I think, sort of more directly um, about sort of justifying colo- the colonial project um, yeah. and, you know, uh, creating yes. an African literature through these voices. That's right. That's right. So the one that you mentioned is the case, uh, and it's by far the one that troubles me and um, a lot of people the most, is the case of, of Kamara Lai. And even in there, so there are, there are two canonical novels. Um, one published in 1953 is called The African Child, and the second uh, published a year later called, in English, The Radiance of the King. And they're two different cases. In the first case, um, if he didn't write the book, or if there were kind of white hands, French hands, <clears throat> French hands um, guiding him, and if, as seems possible, it was a kind of an as-told-to book, um, well, it changes, obviously, what one thinks about what's on the page there. And it does appear the, the kind of quiescent attitude or um, a very peaceful attitude that's taken towards colonialism in that novel, well, it might serve a certain French agenda, um, which the subtext would be colonialism, French colonialism is not so bad, first of all, because it produces literate subjects like this one. Look, he went he went to French school and he came out writing this, and this is literature, and so it's a kind of a uh, a proof of the value of um, French colonialism um, as a sign of uh, civilization. And on the other hand, by saying in the pages of that novel absolutely nothing about French colonialism, mm-hmm. it stands as a kind of a refutation to nationalists who were trying to call attention to the depredations of colonialism. So that's one of those novels that bears the name of Kamara Lai. And then the other one came out a year later. And the general consensus seems to be, and my uh, feeling about it after looking into everything that's been written about it, is that he didn't write it at all. Kamara Lai didn't write it at all. He may have played some role in writing the first novel, but probably not the second. And so that just makes it a very, very strange um, uh, situ- situation because it, it's a fable, uh, kind of a hero's journey through of self-discovery um, on the part of a white man going into Africa. Um, so the, the meaning of that and the reading of it changes depending on whether you think it was written by uh, an African from Guinea named Kamara Lai or by a Belgian uh, named Francis Soulier, who was apparently um, a former Nazi collaborator in Belgium uh, who had sought and found refuge in Paris and who had a thing for Africa. Um, So you can't read the novel the same way um, if you switch that author position. Yeah, and there's it's interesting the resistance to the knowledge about these hoaxes in the sense that in the Kamara Live books, you yourself took on an effort to um, uh, with the New York Review of Books 
um, to let them know that there was the possibility that that this was a hoax um, and you got no response. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, um, it's really as simple as that, which is that I wrote to them um, on several occasions. Um, uh, First, when it was in 2001 and they were doing a couple of things at once, um, they published in the pages of their their magazine um, an essay by Toni Morrison, which became then the preface to their own, the New York Review of Books, their own um, re-edition or republication of that novel in English. Now, meanwhile, the book um, has fallen out of print in French. And uh, nobody has, people don't, publishers don't say why they're not publishing something, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, But that novel in particular has just had a big cloud of suspicion around it uh, from the beginning, people questioning its authenticity in, in various ways, either just saying, well, it doesn't seem very African, but then maybe it is African, maybe it's not. But then other people who, um, big critics of Francophone literature who should have been writing about it because uh, it was a prominent uh, novel and yet um, say absolutely nothing about it. So switching back to the situation in English and with the New York Review of Books, so they, at that time in 2001, they were launching their their book wing, if you will, which I'm sure um, many people are familiar with. They they take kind of forgotten classics, many of which are fantastic, uh, fantastic things. And this novel, uh, By Kamara Lai, The Radiance of the King, was was one of the first. And of course, the... Uh, the fact of it having a new preface written by none other than Nobel Prize winner Toni Morrison, um, that's a very big, uh, very big factor in marketing the book. And um, what Toni Morrison says in the preface uh, is also very remarkable and very much um, at odds with what is known about the novel among um, critics of Francophone literature, um, because she says that this novel kind of takes you to the heart of what she calls Africa's Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I argue uh, in my book is that, uh, you know, by staking that kind of authenticity, and may I say, you know, at this late date, right, in, in the century that we're in now, um, by staking that on a text with this, um, with this history and this, you know, with so many questions around it, uh, well, it leaves us in a very awkward position. Yeah, it's interesting that with all of the um, African literature available uh, in the last from the last fifty years or so, that sort of re. Um, republishing, bringing back into focus a book that is possibly written by not just a white man, but a, a war criminal, um, is, yeah. is seen as being worthwhile. Um, in the way that it's interesting, yeah. you know, with the sort of GT Leroy case, um, JT Leroy, yeah. sorry, um, that 
there were certainly there have been books by sex workers and the Appalachian working class and people with AIDS, but it was the hoax that became the sensation and you know sort of the definitive representation of of these uh, identities and these lives. Yes, but there's something about like the sort of um, publishing class that would prefer somehow the fake version <laughs> to any sort of while claiming you know interest in authenticity would prefer the fake yeah. version that's right yeah and it, they wouldn't admit that you know, no <laughs> one would admit you know given a real and a fake everyone claims they're going to want the real mm -hmm. right but what the history of these hoaxes shows is that it doesn't work that way, and that there uh, there is always a market for fakes. And um, what I argue, of course, is is that um, each of these, you know, each of those states of desire um, that's revealed by the fake getting published um, tells us something about um, uh, things we want to know, things we want to think. You know, we we want to think that. Uh, a West Virginia truck stop sex worker, <laughs> it's kind of a tongue twister, um, can rise above and write uh, with this level of creativity. And I, I mean, there's, it's a kind of a remarkable novel in some ways. Um, um, my students had to convince me of this, frankly. <laughs> they were better readers of it than, uh, than I was and more uh, more sympathetic to it than I was initially. And, um, but there, there's, there's some beauty in that novel and that, that remains there. Um, uh, even after the hoax is exposed, but it has to be said about the JT Leroy hoax. Oh my goodness. What a masterpiece it was in terms of performance art. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, you know, it's all there in the archives of the New York times and, um, in several movies where, you know, there were films made of these, these almost circus like, uh, readings, um, that these, you know, conspirators, um, so-called JT Leroy and her so-called sidekick Speedy, uh, would put on. And you, you, you can watch this and, uh, just, it's jaw-droppingly, uh, amazing. The, she, so JT Leroy, the real author, her name is Laura Albert. Um, she's still out there. And, um, she's the one who said, um, narrating the hoax after it was exposed, we had to, quote, produce a body. Mm -hmm. And hoaxes really are divided between those who produce a body and those that don't. Most don't because it's, it's a very tricky thing to do. Um, and what she and her co-conspirators did was put on an entire very elaborate show that went on, that went on for years. So, and all kinds of celebrities had been roped into it and were very sympathetic. So it, that, that hoax is just a, a real achievement in trickery. And that's another case where, um, I think the New York Times is credited as, as sort of, um, revealing that JT Leroy was a, a hoax. And yet, you know, even before then, you had, 
um, Matilda Bernstein Sycamore, who's a wonderful writer, um, ha- had been doing a show, uh, in, in San Francisco about who was the re- the real JT Leroy. And, and it was gave an interview in one of the documentaries saying, you know, um, so JT Leroy was supposed to be a prostitute working these streets. It's like, I was working those streets. Like nobody asked me. They could have just asked like anybody working in the streets. <laughs> nobody wow. had seen JT Leroy. Um, but yeah, right. it, another thing of like just resisting the information that that um, that this is a fraud. Yeah, yeah, that's right, and that happens time and again. Is that um, people uh, the, the the disproof or the you know the the information that will unveil the fakery and the hoax is uh, it's hiding in plain sight. Um, it could be easily accessed, but people do not want. To know mm-hmm. and will resist the truth um, again because a certain story is being told that uh, that people want to hear. So then, in each of these cases, you have to say, "Well, what is that?" You know, um, I mean, is you know behind the J.T. Leroy thing? Is it some kind of? Uh, and some people have suggested there's some kind of latter day uh, Horatio Alger, you know, rising up from uh, uh, from the underclass. And I have to say, and I feel like a bit of a, um, a traitor to my profession in saying this, but there's a certain kind of self-satisfaction of literature itself that we, many of us think that if you can write, you have truly achieved something. Mm-hmm. And published book is a, is a, uh, is a great thing, uh, intrinsically. And so, um, many of these hoaxes, there's, there's one in French, by an author we still don't know called called Shimo, and it's very clear uh, by the end of it that the fact that you're holding this book in your hand really should impress you, reader, <laughs> uh, about about me, this author from the underclass, because look at what I have come from and what I have achieved. So, and that's that's common t- uh, uh, to J.T. Leroy as well. Um, uh, you know. Obstacles overcome, and the proof is right there uh, in your hand. So, you know, the fact of the book uh, is itself really, uh, really intrinsic. And you have um, the different sections on America and France. So what is the role, what is the difference in the role of identity in sort of these American hoaxes and French hoaxes? Right, right. So I call the first part the land of the free and the home of the hoax because everybody, it's universally acknowledged that uh, America is the home of bunk uh, <laughs> and hoaxes. And so a year ago, Kevin Young, the poet, put out this big, uh, wonderful book called Bunk um, with many synonyms in the, uh, in the remainder of the title. And um, it's not just about literary hoaxes, but about all kinds of, uh, of fakery and, and, and bunk since, I guess, the 19th century. So uh, everybody expects this in the United States, and most of the um, uh, hoaxes that I write about in the section about the United States are fairly well known, although I find people forget them. A lot of people uh, kind of dimly recall J.T. Leroy. It was all over the New York Times when it was happening, but then a few years later, Uh, People tend to forget. But to go to the heart of your question, um, uh, 
people expect America to be a land of identity politics. That's what we're known for. France, well, no, it's, it's, it's not supposed to be that way. France is associated and its republic with a capital R is associated with universalism, universal values. And uh, identity politics, they look on, at, first of all, as American and not in a good way. Um, and they call it, uh, to translate the word directly, communitarianism. <laughs> and that is, it's really, uh, it's really a dirty word. Um, it's anathema to, uh, Republican universalism, which of course historically has worked through the process of assimilation. And all of that has very, very strong implications for the colonies and the post colonies, right? Um, so in France, there shouldn't be any identity to steal or appropriate or hoax because everybody's French in the eyes of the Republic, right? Um, so my argument to give it all away is, well, that itself, that argument itself is obviously a hoax. Um, uh, it just doesn't work that way. There is plenty of identity to steal and people have been doing it um, at least since the 19th century, and my first example actually comes from the, uh, from the 18th century uh, in France. So um, the, the, the outcome, uh, I guess, my, my kind of conclusion is that France and the United States are not as different um, on this score um, as you might have thought from the beginning. And it's funny how many of these writers who have been sort of revealed to be hoaxes, you know, use the same argument, which is that the work should be taken on its own merits. Um, but if yeah. that were, if that were true, why are they taking on a different identity? But, you know, it, even within the reading experience now, um, you know, JT Leroy sort of removed from this fake identity, you know, to me, the books seem very sentimental and, you know, James Fry, yeah. um, you know, having been revealed not to be, um, you know, like the, the massive drug addict that he was uh, pretending to be, um, you know, those books just seem like toxic masculinity. Um, yeah. And so with something like the Kamara Lai book, though, what are the, um, can it be divorced from um, this sort of Belgian Nazi collaborate collaborist or um does the does the work have a sort of or is there even since such a thing as like a pure literary quality to it um divorced from the author yeah. uh there's certainly um a literary quality and um let's so let's talk about um the radiance of the king um but I have to say. Um, the quality is not, and the, the, the kind of the, the role in literary history that uh, Toni Morrison assigns to it as a real break with the past, a break with Western representations and misrepresentations of Africa. Um, it, it, I don't see that in that novel. Uh, I see continuity with Western representations of uh, Africa, um, using Africa as a kind of a uh, university uh, for um, uh, the improvement of the Western soul. Mm -hmm. right? 
um, uh, kind of Henderson the Rain King <laughs> by uh, Paul Bella, to cite an example from, from my youth. Um, but, uh, of course, the problem is, if you have a question of authorship like this, and, and the, the, the specter of the hoax is hovering over a text like that, you can't unring the bell, you can't unknow um, that there are these questions and just read the book on its own, right? Um, you know, just pick the book up and, and, and forget all these questions about the authorship. So that's where you get into the, um, what for me is kind of the fun of the process, even when there's, there are questions of harm at stake, which is something that we might, we might uh, talk about a bit. But, um, this kind of, uh, uh, creative, uh, readerly vertigo that you undergo flipping back and forth. Okay. Look at a particular sentence and say, well, if that was written by an African author, it means one thing. And if that was written by a European author, it likely means another. And there's some remarkable examples in the radiance of the king where, um, certain sentences, uh, seem to suggest that this Belgian guy, Soulier, uh, might have been writing about his own redemption from his own past as a Nazi collaborator and putting in certain little clues um, uh, for what purpose? For his, for his own amusement, we can only, uh, we can only uh, guess, but those, those clues are there um, if, you know, if you know to look for them. But that's the whole trick is you have to know to look for them. <laughs> Yeah. So how do we begin to assess the harm or how even do we define harm under these circumstances of what these stories um, and, and not just the stories, but the sort of wild success of them, what what that does? Yeah, right. And I think a lot of people feel that um, the success itself is harmful. So if you feel that your story, your story. Uh, story of your group, let's say, of your identity has been stolen. And let's say it's been done with spectacular success. Um, you may feel, and people often say, uh, state arguments like this, that somehow you, well, your story has been stolen and somehow your bandwidth has been appropriated. People often imply this, that there's a kind of a bandwidth for a certain story, and if it's taken up by false representations, then the true representations are going to be, first of all, diminished, and second of all, uh, cast under a cloud of suspicion. And there's, there's good reason to think all of that, because we know from the history of false slave narratives in the United States that um, the false ones diluted the impact of the real ones, right? They, you know, they, they created a, a cloud of suspicion. And it's the same with um, uh, Holocaust narratives, uh, for example. Um, uh, and there, there have been many false uh, Holocaust narratives. And everyone that comes out, of course, you know, creates potential uh, harm, not only through the theft and the lying, which I think clearly are forms of, 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 of harm, but also because of the negative light that they could possibly cast, the doubt that they could uh, cast upon real um, 
uh, uh, real memoirs. Um, so there are, there are many different possible kinds of harm, but the one that people most often cite is just, um, and there was a phrase that was used um, by Daniel Mendelssohn in an op-ed in the New York Times, stolen suffering. Um, and he was he was talking about um, two of the hoaxes that I write about, um, one Misha de Fonseca and the other uh, Margaret B. Jones, uh, which was a fairly famous uh, American example. So uh, harm was actually adjudicated in the case of J.T. Leroy. She was taken to court by people who were going to make a film out of her uh, uh, story and he said, "Well, no, we 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 are paying. We paid for a real story, not a fake story." Um, and they they the filmmakers won, and there was a big there was a big settlement from what I understand. And that's interesting too, because that, I mean, it was a novel, not a. I think that they were trying to buy not yeah. a memoir. So yeah, that the interesting idea that a novel is yeah. uh, becomes. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's it's crazy, and, and some of the hoaxers, uh, several of them um, that I write about, will come along afterwards, and after you know, there's been an unveiling either on purpose or or by accident, and they will say, "Well, what part of the word novel do you not understand?" <laughs> and, you know, with this kind of mocking mocking their own victims mm -hmm. uh, uh, gesture, but um, the author who called himself the French author who called himself Jacques-Alain Léger, who's the last third of the book. This is my kind of uh, deep dive about somebody who really pulled off a remarkable uh, series of hoaxes um, at the end of at the end of the 20th century. Um, and and he said that he said he could point to the covers of the books and say, well, look, it says right there, novel. So what is your <laughs> problem? But of course, what's disingenuous about that is he did everything possible to fool people into thinking that this was a real uh, Arab French mm -hmm. author uh, living and writing in France, which he was not. Jacques-Alain Leger was not. Um, so he kind of wants it both ways, where he's uh, bending over backwards to, to fool people and then mocking them for having been fooled. There is a sort of contempt mm -hmm. um, through the book through the various hoaxers of of the expert and the because of course you know you're not going to respect somebody that you're that you're fooling um but it reminded yeah. me of um the orson wells documentary f for fake um about art forgers and the role that the expert the literary expert um or the art expert has in the field and despite being yes. constantly fooled, we still look to these people to be sort of gatekeepers and authorities, which I find interesting because, it, you know, in your case, in your book, you you only sort of point to Dickens as being the the, the person yeah. that has been able to read one of these situations and, and understand immediately that it was somebody other than um, what they were putting yeah. forth. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But, uh, and I, I make a big deal out of the, the Dickens case because it's literally, um, in all the cases that I looked at, it's the only case where it appears that he was able to tell, you know, to detect 
a form of identity, which is to say gender, by reading alone. So there are other cases where there was uh, a kind of circumstantial evidence um, that would suggest, well, this is uh, a different person from um, the person it's supposed to be. Um, and there are cases that um, uh, where people are trying to do uh, a form of what I call forensic reading, but it's so slender as to not be um, uh, definitive proof, like they find a phrase that's repeated. Well, of course, anybody can repeat, repeat a phrase from one author to another. You know, you can, you can pick up a phrase and use it, even an unusual mm -hmm. phrase, right? It's like the case of um, the famous op-ed in the Times that came out of the Trump administration uh, several months ago, where uh, I guess people still don't know who wrote it, but it was truth-telling about what's going on um, in the White House. And uh, there was a certain word that was used, it was an unusual word, now I can't remember what it was, but um, it's a word that um, uh, Pence, Vice President Pence, has mm -hmm. used uh, publicly. So people thought, oh, well, it's Pence. But of course, well, we don't know that. Um, it could be somebody else, who's planted that word there, uh, knowing full well, well, that's going to that's gonna make people think uh, it's Pence. <laughs> so um, anyway, I, I, I'm, my feeling at the end of this study is, is a, a little bit doctrinaire about this question of can you tell? Uh, um, because there's so many examples of people thinking they can tell and they just can't tell. And if they could have told, uh, why didn't they? Um, uh, in a timely fashion, but more often than not, people come along after the hoax has been unveiled, either on purpose or accidentally, and say, oh, yeah, I, I always do that. <laughs> Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Dog. Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.